Hey everybody, welcome back to the 55th episode of Taps and Patience, and I think this is probably only the 54th time where I was late. So, uh, how you doing, Harrison? I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing, AJ? <laughs> I'm doing all right. So, can I tell you about my day today? Yeah, let's hear it. I got up this morning. It was raining outside. I sat down on the couch and grabbed my laptop. I was like, I'll just do some cat inside for a bit. I did not leave my couch. I maybe got up to go to the bathroom a couple times. I went and got a box from the attic for my wife once. But today was 100% CAD and Cam. Well, you know, as as sad as it is that you didn't touch the machine, <laughs> it was probably still a productive day. It just doesn't feel as productive. I will say this. I, I you are not alone on, the, on not touching <laughs> the machine today. Weston didn't touch any of the machines mm. today either. Uh-oh. So, but yeah, we've, I, I'll, I'll save mine until we're done with yours. Is, is there anything else on your day before we get into mine? Um, I mean, that was pretty much the highlights. Basically I was working on finalizing the fixture for the, the fidget cubes that is now, uh, catted and cammed. I just need to, I just need to put it in. I had to make sure it wasn't in the machine already. I just have to put it in the machine and hit cycle start. And um, then I was working on some more better desk design to kind of fill out that um, product line before before the Kickstarter. Gotcha. Oh, and I registered a new domain for the secret project that we talked about like last week or two weeks ago. Oh, nice. Which, if we get time, we can talk about later today. Sounds good. So I guess I'll go into my day a little bit. So... Well, just a little bit of backstory. The ever since our last podcast episode, every day at the shop except for the last two days have been stress-inducing to the max days. And they've just been days where everything's been going wrong and not any of the one issues is necessarily a big issue, but compounded it feels like absolutely nothing got done. And the the main two culprits for that is um, we were running material on the lathe. It was a oil impregnated bronze. Okay. And basically we had been running a whole bunch of parts that were stainless and we were waiting till the very last minute to switch over to bronze, which was probably a bad idea because it was due in like two days. Mm. And then that put us under the gun and the oil impregnated bronze, it's it's kind of like a clay almost. That's the closest thing I can say. It's incredibly soft and it has zero structural rigidity. Interesting. And um, it's actually porous. Like I, I accidentally split it in half on the lathe, one of the pieces. Hmm. And I didn't hit it very hard. with the, the just came in with my facing tool to face off the front. And... That alone put enough tension to twist it off, and it was a uh, five eighths diameter. Okay. And, and uh, yeah, it just snapped off, and uh, it's pretty wild. And like when it snapped off, it looked like sand, like the ends. It looked like wet sand. That's the best description I can come up with. So like halfway between cast iron and copper. Or like the combination of cast iron and copper. The worst yeah. of both cast iron and copper together. Basically, yes. And to put it in perspective, these were knurled parts. Mm -hmm. 
And we test ran everything in aluminum before we did it in and this oil impregnated bronze. <clears throat> and with whenever you do a knurling pattern, now, have you done much knurling? No, I've done none. Okay. So knurling is kind of a dark art. And I I have done very little of it, but I've done a lot of research on it. <laughs> and so, but one of the big things that you do is that um, if you want to say have a 5 eighths diameter knurling, you actually machine it down like 15 or 20 thou undersize. And then the knurling kind of pushes the material. It's kind of like a, like a, a thread formering, mm -hmm. like a, a form tool when you're doing a thread where it pushes material out at the same rate that it's going in. And so you, you start out with undersized, you knurl it, and it expands it to the right size. With the oil impregnated bronze, it's so soft, you have to start at the final diameter. Uh, because if you start okay. undersized, it won't it won't expand any more than whatever it's already at. Instead, the material will just will just compress inside. Because it's porous. Because it's porous. And huh. so it's it's just so we had basically had to machine it at final diameter and then run the knurling tool and it came out pretty much spot on. Who needs a knurled uh, oil impregnated bronze part? Aren't they normally well, used as like bushings and stuff? <clears throat> yes. Yes. So this was the very first parts that they were doing a test for one of my customers. And they were they normally do them out of bronze, but they tried this oil impregnated bronze. Mm. And the other problem we had was that, okay, so I think we're going to make a rule in our shop because of these parts. So <laughs> you know how you talked about like banning materials and different things from your shop? I think I'm going to ban cobalt drills from my Interesting. shop. Um, and the reason I say that is because we have been... Any chance we get, we have been switching over to go drills from Kenametal. And anyone who hasn't used those things, they're freaking amazing. They go they through carbide? basic they're carbide. They go through any material. They're I use them on any job all the time. They're they're absolutely fantastic. But they're like 70 bucks a drill or more. Especially as you get into the larger sizes, they can get up to two hundred dollars a drill. So they're they're not cheap by any stretch of the imagination. But they go through any material and they're bang on accurate and they don't flex. And the the holes in this oil impregnated bronze. It, so it was it was a it was like a three or four inch long part, and it had like a 0.2 inch hole drilled all the way through it. Okay. And so we tried to drill it from one side and then drill it from the other and have a meet in the middle. And we didn't have the right drill size in anything other than cobalt. And mm. that thing walked all over the place. And so that was the other thing we were fighting. Um, and eventually I got a can of metal drill and just drilled it out with that and then used a reamer to try to straighten out the hole as much as possible. Um, and we ended up getting it to work. But if you look in the middle of those parts, there's a little cavity where it kind of expanded out in the very middle where they were trying to meet up. And it was just like... You know, I, I keep trying to find reasons to use the cobalt drills. And every time I use one, I've run into problems where it doesn't last very long. And I'm like, I should yeah. have just gone with the go drill, like from Kenna Metal. Like, 
had I just done that, then I wouldn't have had any problems. And so I'm just, I think I'm just going to start throwing all of them out and just be like, nope, not going to use them. And the only reason I have all those is because when we were first starting the business, we got a drill tap set from Haas. So they're the Haas Cobalt drills and they're good drills. I remember when we first got them, <clears throat> my, uh, my grandpa was working on a tractor and they had a piece that they were trying to drill a hole into. And they had snapped like <clears throat> 10 drill bits or something like this, trying to drill this hole. And I didn't want to give them a nice cobalt drill or a nice carbide drill. Yeah. <laughs> and so I was just like, here, try this crappy cobalt drill from Haas. And because uh, if they break, broke that, it wouldn't bother me. And it drilled straight through it. And they were like, this is the best drill ever. And I'm like, no, this is like my junk drill. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so for like normal drills, they're they're really good. They do really well. But in the CNC machines, especially, I, I don't really have very many problems with them on the mill side. But on the lathe side, it seems like they walk all over the place. Hmm. Um, and I don't know why that is. I wonder so. if they're just super sensitive to being on center. And, you know, on a mill, it's always going to be on center. But on a lathe, you might be like two thou off and not realize it. Yeah, except I tr I recentered all of the tool holders for it relatively recently. Now, I don't have... That could be a good point. They could be just like less than a thou. Because I think I got them within like five tenths, the holders. And it could be that that was just enough to to throw them all out of whack, especially the deeper they get. Cause the deeper they get, they just like the machine would start to vibrate because the drill would start to get off center and start vibrating inside the part. And it's like, okay, that that's not good. <laughs> so. Is yeah. it, are they maybe off um, out of parallel with the spindle axis? That could also be, I don't have, I didn't have a good way to measure that. Um, Cause yeah, I, I don't know how you measure that. I guess yeah. put a rod in the um, the tool holder and then sweep an indicator along it. Yeah. So it's not an issue, and my holes come out on size and straight with the go drill right in the middle. Yeah. So, so <laughs> that's that's just my. I think for 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 at minimum of the lathe, no cobalt. Um, and it also doesn't help that like I can flick the end of the drill and it's just like yeah. it vibrates it's like yeah that's not very that's not very rigid <laughs> so one of the so a lot of the times when you're working with small tools and like small parts there's kind of a like if you start getting below like 3 16th of an inch or maybe below eighth of an inch the tools start to get more expensive again the one exception to that is drills because you can start using those pcb drills and they are not only super cheap they also work super well I, yeah, I love being able do. to use the PCB drills. They, they are really nice. I've used them a couple times. That's what I, I, I had a cheap Amazon set that I still have. I, don't, I haven't used it in a long time, but they got me by for a long time on the small yep. stuff. So anyways, that was problem number one. And it ended up tying up our lathe for about three days. Um, and it was six parts. So when we have this huge backlog of parts and we can't really tear anything apart because we're like halfway in between setups or, or whatnot, it was just a, it was a nightmare. 
The other problem, and the only reason we didn't end up taking parts off of that and switching over to something else was because the other problem that was going on simultaneously that took even more of our time. And that was we got the Zoom Speed Probe. Hmm. Yeah. Wireless and, probing, man. When it works, it is amazing. However, I feel like the coolant ring did not exist when the Zoom Speed Probe came out. The kit came out, and it is not watertight. So at one point, we filled it up with coolant. And I Always thought good I'd, for electronics. And I thought yeah. I'd shorted out the board, but it still works. But we just keep having problems. It runs off a radio signal, and so mm -hmm. if it loses communication, it, the whole thing just locks up. And that happens pretty much a handful of times every day at this oh, point. Oh, man. Like, in the beginning, we we rebuilt it and re-soldered re and reassembled it, like, ten times, um, trying to troubleshoot and figure out what was going on with it. And I have no idea what ultimately ended up being the problem, but we rebuilt the probe so many different times. And anyways, it's been super frustrating to the point where I've been going online and going, okay, I want to try to find some kind of Renishaw probe and I'm going to try to put it in my Tormach. And this is probably way overkill, but your probe has had issues. This probe has had issues. Wireless probe makes way too much sense. I make so much better parts on it on the Tormach that um, I need a good waterproof probe with long battery life that's accurate. And at this point, I feel like Renishaw, like you're going to be like Renishaw, Bloom, or oh, there's a couple other companies out there. But um, I got on the phone with Renishaw and um, I got a parts list of what I think I would need to put a Renishaw probe in a Tormach. I don't know if I'm going to pull the trigger on it. It's going to be really expensive. It's but it's, it's like tempting. six six or seven K if you go directly through Renishaw, right? Mm -hmm. It's uh, 6,700 for the kit that they oh. told me to get. Okay. And the look into the probes that the Sile machines ship with. I don't remember the name of the company off the top of my head, but I believe it's an American company. And I believe the probing kits are around 3K. I'll have to look into that. I was looking on eBay trying to trying to piece together all the different parts mm -hmm. for the Renishaw. And I think if I did that, I could get it under 3K. I think okay. I was around 2K if I got used stuff. Um, but it's it's super frustrating. And it's I just want something that works. I don't need projects right now. I, 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 I want I, I want to pay money to get something that works so I can make more money. <laughs> On the probe topic, my probe with the... So, taking a step back, I have the Drutronics probe. It worked for a little while and then stopped being reliable and then it started being super unreliable to the point where it was useless. And I eventually took it apart and I did some troubleshooting. I replaced some wires. And eventually I remachined the little disc that the sensor sits on. And that fixed... 100% of my issues. I have not had a single false trip or the, the probe getting stuck since then. That being said, I sent my CAD model, I sent pictures, I sent a detailed description of the problem to the two Drutronics, 
and they just kind of waved me off. So I don't think Drew Tronics is actually going to fix their issue. It's a design flaw. It's just a poorly designed part where the basically the long story short, there are set screws that you use to adjust the runout. Mm-hmm. Those set screws kind of sit halfway off of a um, aluminum ring. Like they're kind of halfway on, halfway off this aluminum disc. And the sensor sits on top of that disc. And the way it's designed now, if you put any torque on those, it bends the, um, the disc. It like gives it little dimples. And I mean, like there's a, like a, a little lip that runs around that is literally maybe 15 thou thick. And of aluminum, soft aluminum. And mm-hmm. so I think what happens is you just tighten it a little bit too much. And we are not talking like manhandling. Like I was using the short side of it. I think it's like a 1 inch Allen wrench to tighten mm-hmm. these little tiny set screws. And I completely warped that disc. So I remade it both thicker with thicker walls, like thicker and Z and then uh, larger radial walls. And I made it out of um, 4140 pre-hard instead of aluminum. And it immediately changed that probe. It was a lot easier to dial in run out because the aluminum wasn't just deforming. It was like, you know, actually moving that disc instead mm-hmm. of just bending. And because it was a nice flat surface in there for the sensor to sit on, it, it just worked. That's awesome. And I, I gave a detailed description. I sent it to Zoom, or not to Zoom Speed, the Drewtronics. And he was like, I'm glad you found your issue. And I even told him, I was like, <laughs> I will endorse your project, if your, your product, if you can tell me that you will fix these issues. Um, but right now I cannot recommend it. And he, was, and he just gave me like a, a one line, like, I'm glad you found your issue. So I cannot recommend that Drewtronics probe to anybody at this point. The manufacturer knows of the bug and how to fix it and doesn't seem willing to fix it. So that is a bummer. I was really, yeah. I really like the Drutronic stuff. I really want to like it, but. Yeah. And I know oh, there's two other people that have the same issue. So. Hmm. Maybe I, that's... I need to do, I, I legitimately at this point, as soon as I find time, I am starting a competitive, a competing company and making a competitive pro. That's what I was going to say. I was going to say that, that like there's a market here for a good wireless probe. That's waterproof and has a decent battery life. And I like the optical side of mm-hmm. the Drewtronics over the, the radio. And yeah, there's, there's gotta be a good way to do that. So if we hit going back to the secret project, I am starting to work on a brand of tooling, uh, specifically tools designed for lightweight, hobby-sized machines. I obviously am not making those tools myself. I'm trying to keep them cheap, so I'm going to China on them. I obviously don't do that with anything of the DTE product line, but I don't think the hobby market would appreciate the Made in America prices on these. I think they want them cheap. Yeah. And I think as part of that line, like the next obvious product would be a probe. So yeah. if the tool, if you guys want a wire, a DTE wireless probe, um, then buy buy some tools from me. Yeah. So I just registered the domain today and took the Instagram account and kind of started working on some of the branding stuff, mostly in my my head, not actually on paper. 
Do you want to what's do you do you want to publicly say what your Instagram account is or do you want to hold off? I can't. There's no content on it now. So I'm calling the company Sassy Tools or Sassy Tooling. Oh, nice. And my plan is to basically like my my brand. I basically just want to be really sarcastic, but like in a gotcha in a positive way, not in a negative way. I won't be mean, but want to want to compete with a VF two <laughs> on your on your Tormach? Buy my I sassy just say tools. The name wrong. Am I dumb? It's cheeky tools. Oh, cheeky tools. I'm oh, dumb. I'm sorry. Not sassy. That was another name I looked at. Cheeky tools. Cheeky tools. I've already see. This is why I wasn't going to talk about because I because <laughs> I don't have the uh, the branding down. Yeah, cheeky tools. I'm sorry. That's the name. That's cool. So, little little more sarcasm than the design the everything account. I like it. I like it. Yeah. So, well, we just started a a big run today on pro on some parts for a customer. 1200, 1200 pieces. Yeah, it's a couple. 12, yeah. So it's 1200 pieces and I can load up a four foot stick of material and it can run for almost 40 minutes unattended. Okay. That's not too bad. And I can get between 35 and 36 parts per bar, depending on the exact length of bar. Um, but yeah. So it's a whole bunch of these tiny little stainless steel spacers. So it's really nice to be able to load that up and just let Walk it go. Away. So, yeah. So, your, anyways, go ahead. I was going to say, your average cycle time is a lot shorter than mine, isn't it? Mm, on the lathe, most definitely. On the lathe, anything over five minutes is considered a long part for me. Okay. On the mill, anything under. Well, I guess it depends on the cycle. So if you count total machine time per part, um, then I would I say mean, most... From human interaction to human interaction. Like I said, it depends on which op I'm on. Um, if I'm like running like a, a six-op part and usually op one and two average is anywhere from 10 to 40 minutes. And then usually the the remaining, who knows, anywhere from three to six ops seems like some some of these parts. Those are usually pretty quick, like a couple minutes apart. Usually, okay. you can just stand in front of the machine and just swap them out. Yeah. Whereas my normal, I get from like human interaction to human interaction, is like three to eight hours. Yeah, mine's not anywhere near that. So. Yeah, no, it's it's a lot quicker than that for me most of the time. But anyways, so I had the problems with the probe. I had the problems with the material. All that to be said, in the last two days, we have gotten done a crap ton of parts in two days. Um, it's kind of helped make up for the loss in productivity. Um, maybe not make up, but makes me feel a whole lot better. Um so in the last two days, we've probably gotten over 60 parts done each day. Okay. And it's just a ton for us. Um, and in, in the way we look at it is we call it by types. So right now we have over 50 different types of parts. 
and those types usually have anywhere from four to twelve hundred pieces. <laughs> twelve hundred is the biggest, um, but the average is probably around ten to twenty per type. And we have figured out that with the amount of types that we have currently on order, they're all due by October 20th. We have to average three types a day. So I have to be taking three different types off my list. And yesterday we did five or six. And today we did four. Nice. So um, it puts a lot of pressure on the mill right now because the lathe is busy on that 1200 piece and that's just one type so i have to be getting basically three types done every day on the mill uh until the lathe comes back in to the point where it's taking off some more yeah so when you get a big pl let's say it's got you know 50 different parts on it uh (laughs) or different part families 50 types do you start with the easy ones or start with the hard ones so it depends on the mill and the lathe. So so I'll, what we do is we try to organize it by materials uh, is the first way we organize it. And I'll usually go for the harder materials first. So in this case, that's going to be stainless over aluminum. Um, so it, it would go it would go stainless carbon aluminum. Um, those are kind of the three materials that we use. So I always try to prioritize stainless than carbon than aluminum. And then once we're in the stainless family, I'll try to go for the harder parts, but I will organize it by setups in the machine. So I will try to select a, a deal where I'm not constantly changing out the tooling in my machine. Mm. So I will, if whatever that looks like on the mill and on the lathe, on the lathe side, that usually means selecting parts that have the same tap size. That way we're not changing out the drill and tap. Because it's a lot easier to change out the pads than it is to change out the uh, drill and tap in the machine uh, and retouch those off. Whereas the pads, because uh, we got the Royal Collet system, just takes a couple seconds to swap, swap those out. So Weston organizes those by drill and tap size, um, and then he'll try to he'll try to bunch the materials that are the same diameter together, so you're not changing out the pads as often. But Within all that strategy, try to do the more complicated ones as soon as possible, but they might not come up right away depending on the order that we're going through the parts. That makes sense. So, um, but we try to, we're, what we're focusing on right now more than anything is setup reduction. What can we do to release, to reduce our setup time to the least amount where we can be switching between the, the different families of parts or the different types of parts? as fast as possible. You know, what does that look like and what does that take to do? And so that's what we're trying to, to focus on. Sounds like you need a zero point. Zero point would be nice. Although I, I, I'm not the zero point so far. I've been able to do everything in two vices. Mm -hmm. I haven't really had to switch anything out there too much. The, amount of tools I can have set up at any given time on the lathe. Like we just bought a whole bunch of tap, uh, a whole bunch of tool holders uh, from Haas um, to have all um, M three through M 10 drill and tap. We're trying to have set up at all times. And that has reduced uh, changeover quite a bit already. 
we took all of our drills or we took all of our tooling out of our toolbox and we got a rack on the side of the machine and that freed up a, a place in our toolbox because it was getting pretty full mm-hmm. and made it easy access for all of our tooling. So it's easier to just change in and out. But so far, like if I'm going to, that's another thing we'll organize by. If I'm going to have to pull off one or both of the vices, then we try to do all the parts that we can that, that need the vices off while it's off. So, and we're looking at getting a fourth axis. So, um, we've been in talks with someone about a used one. Well, our, our favorite Tormach guy. Um, and so hopefully we can get a, a, a fourth axis from him. If not, we'll probably just buy one. Um, but that'll help because we got a lot of parts that are lathe and then mill with flats and they're, um, I got five C call it blocks. And they're mm-hmm. awesome, but when you're doing thirty to fifty parts at a time and having to flip them, yeah, it starts to make sense that a rotary or fourth axis to be able to index them would speed that up a lot. So yeah, so we're probably going to end up going and getting a fourth axis, and we're going to have this Tormach built out like a boss. And then we're going to get another machine. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you could, well, except for the fourth axis, you could move all those things. So, no, I'm, we want to hang on to it. Honestly, the Tormach is making amazing parts, which actually brings up another point. So, Weston went and dropped off a bunch of parts today. And not long after he dropped off parts, um, the purchasing agent called me. He's like, hey, Harrison, um, we got some problems. I was like, okay, walk me through it. He goes, you know, my, uh, the, the project or the, um, shop manager just came into my office and he was, he was over at the parts department at uh, shipping and receiving. And, uh, he said that he was looking at some parts and there were some problems with some of the parts and I asked him which ones. And he, he told me, and I said, Oh, those are precision ingenuity parts. He's like, well, what's wrong with them? Guys, like, well, we we got some problems. They're they're too good. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how he told me over the phone. Yeah. So I'm over here like sweating bullets and whatnot. And <laughs> turns out that uh, the he was really happy with the parts and he he really liked how they were looking. And uh, they were they were nice enough and different enough from all the regular suppliers that he felt the need to go talk to him and um and then the pro- the uh, purchasing manager felt that he needed to call me to share the news. And so long story short, we're, we're standing out with a Tormach basically. And uh, so the Tormach is a fantastic machine that's going toe to toe with all these guys with, I'm sure major machining centers. Um, I doubt any of them are running a Tormach and yeah, <laughs> I, I would, I kind of really want to bring them to our old sh- to this shop that we're currently at before we move and be like, this is where we've been making all your parts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Take a gander. <laughs> so hey, you just need to wait until you get the new machine and then have a picture of the two side by side. And we're like, we're going from this to this. So yeah. give us more POs. Yeah. So they're, they're excited. Um, they're they're uh, We've, we've been kind of keeping them in the loop that we're moving shops and, 
going to be getting some new equipment. And um, so they're, they keep asking us, you got it yet? You got it yet? You moved yet? You moved yet? And it's like, nope, not yet. So, but which that's the other thing that's supposed to happen this week is the guy who owned the building before this is supposed to be his last week. And tomorrow, so that we have this big event locally in town, it's called Picket Time on 59. And the shop's on Highway 59. And so all the businesses that are on 59, they they will sell stuff. And there's a whole, like, all the houses that are on 59, they'll, they'll have yard sales. And it's a huge, big deal locally, if you like yard sales, that is. <laughs> and... Um, I've never, I've never gone to any of these places, but I just know that on the highway, it is just packed from one end to the other uh, with cars. And he's hoping that he can get everything sold off by then. And I don't think he's going to get it all gone. I really don't. I hope it does, but um, I don't think it's going to happen. And it was funny because my uncle came in the other day and he's like, you guys need to go, you know, buy some of that stuff before it all sells. And it's, it's all a bunch of antique crap that i don't need yeah and and i was just like we don't need to go buy any of that from him because give it a couple days and we'll own all of it regardless (laughs) (laughs) we'll we'll own it no matter what by the end of this i'm ready for him to be out we are busting at the seams and and tripping over parts and have no space and need a new machine yep so but it's exciting i I've, if we can sustain this level, it'll be very good. And if we can continue to grow at the rate we've been growing, which is kind of an ironic statement to say after sustain, um, but sustain the the derivative. Yes. Then um, we'll be doing very, very well. So anyways, it's a, a lot of it's all of my frustrations have been with Things that could be fixed with better equipment. Oh, I feel that. And uh, better equipment is coming. It's just a matter of when. Speaking Speaking of of which. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, don't you have some better equipment coming before me? I bought a mill. It is officially, well, it's officially purchased. It's not on the way yet. The, on... Let's see, I finalized the paperwork on Friday. On Monday, I sent in my down payment. And then I got a, a message from the, the machine seller that was like, hey, are, you, are, we, are we doing anything yet? And I was like, well, I paid. You just need to wait for Geneva Capital to reach back out to you. And so I haven't heard anything from them today. I was kind of, <laughs> I was kind of uh, putting off bugging them for a little bit longer because I have some money coming in. I have about two, two and a half thousand dollars coming in. And I am not paying for freight with the loan. I'm paying that separately. And so I wanted the extra money to come in. So I have a little bit of a buffer for when I pay for freight. Yeah. I am not doing riggers for this machine. I'm going to be moving it myself, but it's still got to get here because it's coming from Cali. Um, Yeah. So, you know, three quarters of the way across the country or whatever. How many tools can that hold? 20. It's got a 20 tool ATC. Oh man, that's nice. Yep. That is really nice. And it's got a Renishaw probe. It's got a Renishaw probe, both spindle and um, table. Oh man, you're going to be spoiled on that machine. I really think you are. 
we should probably say what the machine is. Or we oh, can yeah. just let people guess. <laughs> um, I bought a used, old, an old used Haas OM2A. Uh, it's a small, high-speed spindle type machine. So it's actually, yeah. I believe, smaller in footprint than my Tormach, which reminds oh, me yeah. I need to clear space for it and run power, but that shouldn't be too difficult. Yeah. It's it's 220 volt and we when we built the powder coat booth, we didn't run a wire all the way to the breaker box, but we um put a junction box in the attic and put a wire down that wall. So all we have to do is drag a wire through the attic to get to the uh the breaker panel. So not too difficult. A little bit of work, but not not anything difficult. It is old. It's a 2006. Supposedly, supposedly, it has spent all of its life machining acrylic. Um, like all used machines tend to do. <laughs> acrylic or aluminum or whatever. So yeah. it has a little bit of like a white powder over the machine. And I'm a little bit afraid that they were machining like some um, filled plastics, like a glass uh, filled glass, nylon. Glass filled nylon, yeah. Um, that's my, I think, my biggest risk with this machine. But, I mean, it, it moves, it does tool changes, the spindle spins, and there will be surprises with it being a used machine, so. Yeah. So, but I, I'm I, taking this to come. <clears throat> there's not a whole lot that I feel like can go wrong or that people can abuse on those little machines, though. Like, the smaller uh, machines, it's, it's, it's a lot harder to throw apart or damage anything, I feel like. The spindles are supposedly fairly delicate on these. Uh, because true. it's a 30k spindle, they I don't know. I've just heard that they're easy to damage. It also yeah. uses itty bitty teeny tiny ISO 20 tool holders, which are way more expensive than BT30. Um, which oh, I need to buy those. I forgot about that. That's like the the one big purchase I need to do before the machine comes. Does it does it come with any? Did you ask them about that? Does not come with any tool holders. Man, we were. We were looking at a used UMC 500 the other day, just playing with the idea of if that was something that we could even afford. Um, and it had a 50, uh, 50 tool carousel, but it, it came with 50 tool holders. Mm, that's really nice. That's like, it, like what, $15,000 worth of tooling or something crazy? It, it was it was HSK too. Oh, so. that's like $40,000 <laughs> worth of tooling. Yeah, so... It was like, like we looked at the price and we're like, eh. And then he's like, yeah, they didn't list this, but they also have tooling that they would include with that. And I was like, oh, really? How much? And they're like, oh, about 50 holders. I was like, yeah, that, would, yeah. <laughs> that makes it a lot better. Yeah. So Breaking Taps is also selling an OM2. And his is, I don't remember the same age. It's close in age, but it has less hours on it. And it comes with tooling. But it does not have the probing. And it was about, as we were talking earlier, it's five or six thousand dollars to add probing from Haas. Yeah. Yeah. Which <clears throat> I don't know. At some point it's just a matter of flipping a coin of which one's worth it or not. It depends on just how good of condition this machine is when it gets here. I should say I've only seen it in pictures and videos. Yeah. The let's see, there's the other weird thing about the machine is it didn't seem to have the coolant system installed. 
I asked for some more pictures showing the coolant tank and stuff, and it does actually have the tank and pump, which was not something I was originally sure about. So we do have at least the tank and pump, and there is a box that is in the coolant tank that I think has the, um, the fittings. However, that box is labeled probe. So I don't know, maybe I get a free Renishaw probe. Or maybe it's the the stuff that came with the Renishaw probe, but interesting. I'm, it might also be the, the fittings. It's just like handwritten on Sharpie, but it looks like a freshly sealed box. So who knows what that hmm. is? Interesting. That's cool. Yeah, it'll be fun when you get that up and running. Like I've I've wanted to see more with those little machines and how well they can do. I wish Fidget Things would post more on his. Yeah. He's like, good at marketing and shows his products instead of his process. I'm like, yeah, somebody here. It's like, it's like, come on, man. I want to, I want to see that thing run. <laughs> so, it does have a fourth axis drive. If I ever choose to put a fourth axis on it, uh, I looked into the, the cost of getting a fifth axis, and it's like the drive plus the thing itself, even used the trunnion itself, is like one and a half of what I'm paying for the machine. So yeah. I don't know if that's necessarily worth it. Though I guess, I don't know, productivity is productivity. And it'll add to the well, resale value. It's not something that you necessarily need today, but give it a year and all of a sudden that doesn't probably sound as bad as you think it does. True. So. Yeah, my current plan is to keep the Tormach for at least three months after I get this machine up and running. And if I'm happy with the machine, I will sell off the Tormach and then buy another one. That's my, my current theory. Another OM or just another, another machine? OM. Yep. Yeah. That's fair. Could you, okay, here's, here's a question. And this might be a horrible idea, but <laughs> We'll just we'll just play the what if game. If you got that machine and got it up and running, could you then, if the breaking tabs machine hadn't sold, could you buy it? And then could you use the Renishaw probe in both machines and just move it between the two for a little while? Like, can you can you have a Renishaw probe in different machines? And I believe they are coded to the receiver in some way. I don't know like how complicated that is. If it's just like pairing, and you can just pair it to both. Mm-hmm. They would have to be out of line of sight. I'd have to like put them on opposite sides of the shop, so it doesn't like trigger one from the other machine. That's true. That would be fun. I don't though. know. That would be fun. Just for like a little while until you can get it until you get a probing system. But if you had one that was running production and you didn't have in process probing, it'd be real easy to just like get everything probed in and then move it over and use it yeah. the other one for a while. I yeah. I would love to get this, like, to put this thing on my floor and have it immediately making parts and the Tormach just sitting idle so that I could sell this one and grab the Breaking Taps OM as well. Mm -hmm. But again, this is, you know, counting chickens before they're hatched here. The machine's not here yet. Yeah. I don't even know when it's shipping yet. So, yeah. Now, those are a five horse, aren't they? Yes. That's wild. Those he, they tell you some pretty conservative things. Like they say, 
They say not to run tools that are larger than 3 8 inch for roughing and not to go, I think it's 20% step down and 20% with the cut or something like that. It's like yeah. in the manual. Yeah. I have definitely seen people run much larger tools than that, though generally for like like a tri-fly for facing. Yeah. I think the kind of the sweet spot on material removal is to go with a, a, a quarter inch and just, you know, use all of those 30k rpms use every one of them yeah yeah and i think that makes the most sense like for a machine of that size quarter inch is probably a pretty large tool and with how much rpms it has um, you're not going to be missing out much from going to a larger tool size because you're not going to have the torque for a larger diameter but you'll have the the rpms for a smaller diameter so which is just what it's built for so exactly I was looking at the fixture that I was making, uh, or well, that I'm planning on making tomorrow. And it's like an hour and 45 minutes of cycle time on this mill. And if I can do nothing else except increase my RPM by three times, that becomes like 45 minutes. Yeah, that's awesome. So That's not even like, what's what's the rapids and all that at? Do you know? Uh, I believe it's about 750. Man, that's zooming. Compared yeah. to, yeah, especially for its size. What are the Tormox like? Three hundred. Three hundred. Yeah, it's it's three hundred in X and Y, and it's like two thirty in Z or two fifty in Z, something like that. Yeah, if you have the MX, gosh. Yeah, my old uh, M series was like sixty. Do you know yeah, how think, like this was machine felt so much faster than the M series? Or no, it was a PCNC. It was pre M. Mm-hmm. PCNC. It was the stepper motors, and I think they maxed out at a hundred. Okay. Inches a minute. It was. It was. It might have. It might not have been a hundred. Might have been. Like, I basically like doubled or tripled, and then I'm going to double or triple again. Yeah. 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 So, I, all I have to say is that my my ride with the Tormach has been a roller coaster. It is a much better machine than people give it credit for me included but there's a huge asterisk beside that that says it's only a better machine once you figure out what you're doing and how to run out everything properly with its strengths yes <laughs> because like even today we were running parts and we were just facing stainless with a two inch face mill and the deflection that was in it, it just didn't line up with the, like, I, I had a wide part. And as I was facing it back and forth, I, I needed to narrow my step overs because it was putting too much tool pressure and it was deflecting too much. And while the part was in spec and everything felt good, you could feel the mm-hmm. the, the lines between the parts. And it's just like, it, it shouldn't do that. Like, a heavier machine wouldn't do that. They would be nice and flat. And the reason I know that is because we had another shop make some parts because we were didn't have enough time to get them done. And they're a sharp they're they're a shop that we kind of trade work with a bunch. And they have a, a huge heavy um VMC. And they had a face mill that they ran on those parts, and it was just butter smooth all the way across. And it was just like, yeah, that's what it's supposed to be like. Have you taking checked, a, sorry, have you checked ahead. for twist in your machine? It's perfectly flat in aluminum, like when I face. Oh, okay. And that's with a three-inch face mill. Yeah. It's it's the nose dips a little bit whenever you 
go with mm. the and I, I do a five thou a five thou finishing pass now and that's made it better but it still has a little bit of interesting so um like if i if i go with like an end mill and i zing it back and forth it's i mean the smaller diameter is one but um in aluminum it can be basically seamless unless i take too deep of a pass like if i do a five thou cleanup with a three inch face mill on aluminum um it's basically seamless you can't really feel it at all um, if you do your fingernails, you might be able to just barely catch something, but it's not noticeable and not really feelable most of the time. Yeah. So I think my machine is due for a, uh, a good overhaul, you know, fight my bearings, <clears throat> fight the gibs. Nothing's broken. Um, I need to replace the Z axis way covers cause I threw apart and, and put a slit in them. Yeah. Yeah. The the tour box, if if under heavy use, and I'd probably recommend it even if they weren't, every every year they really need to be torn all apart and cleaned up and have all the gibs and everything readjusted. It makes a huge difference on those machines. Yeah. On these machines. Um, but they they make phenomenal parts whenever you've got everything figured out. Um, it doesn't really matter the material. Um, I'm, I've I've machined a crap ton of stainless on that thing, and I've made a lot of really good parts on it. So, and that's all I'm doing right now is stainless. And stainless, I I feel really comfortable in stainless now. It's a it's a weird thing to kind of sit down and like think about how many parts I'm producing in stainless on a Tormach, and basically hitting everything that I need to hit first try, like getting speeds and feeds and strategies and everything dialed in um, and doing job shop work where I have to get stuff done in high volumes and high quantities and fast times to be competitive. And I'm doing it with a Tormach and getting praise for it is it, it, it is a huge testimony to what you can do on the on these things like they're not the thing is it's just everything becomes so much better when you get to a larger machine yeah. it's like it's it's like it's like can it be done yes is it going to take a lot of time and frustration probably to get to that point yes and it's uh, i was listening to someone the other day and he was talking i don't know if it was a tormach or a similar uh style machine but he was just talking about how like he was dealing with speeds and feeds and he's like i felt like i was always on the razor's edge of rigidity mm -hmm. or horsepower and he said and then i moved to a, a bigger machine i think he got like a, a haas vf series machine and he was like all of a sudden my, my tolerance range for you know running running my tooling just right and having my setups just right he's like all that went out the window it was like it was like my range was now like 300% larger or more than like it was on the Tormach. Like my, my range for being a, uh, making a good part was just so much higher. I, I, I have a sticky note somewhere here. I may have thrown it away. I had a sticky note with my, I'm working on a, I don't know what it's going to be. I don't know if it's going to be like a, like a ebook that I'll put on my website, like the tooling website, um, cheeky tools, or if it's going to be like a, a video series, but I'm working on 
uh, AJ's Grand Unified Theory of Speeds and Feeds. And mm -hmm. basically, the idea is based around this Venn, di Venn diagram. So you got three big lobes here. You got one lobe that's the tool. You got one mm -hmm. lobe that is the machine. And then you have one lobe that is the material slash work holding. And those all mm -hmm. overlap. And depending on your work holding your machine, they are all different sizes. Well, hopefully they overlap. And where mm -hmm. they overlap, those are the speeds and feeds that you can run. And even inside that circle, you have a smaller circle that is what is acceptable and what is to you and what is not. Yeah. And yeah. if you have a better machine, your machine lobe of that Venn diagram gets bigger and you may be able to move, you know, like go to a different part of that circle that is, you know, more acceptable to you. Mm -hmm. If you have better tooling, the tooling circle gets bigger. If you have worse tooling, the tooling circle gets smaller. If you're working in brass, the material circle is really big. But like, yeah, that's my my grand unified theory of speeds and feeds. No, I, I really like that. That's a really good way to visualize it because they all they are all interconnected in that yeah. way. That's a good way. to. I'm, I'm glad you pointed that out. I'm, I like that. Yeah. And with a Tormach, you just got a small machine circle. If you have a Kern, you have a big machine circle. Mm hmm. But yeah. even with a Kern, you aren't hogging material. It's just a really accurate and rigid machine. But you can't. You can't push it like you could a, a bigger machine. Like it's still, it's still a specialized tool for a specialized task. Yeah. So, but yeah. No, did you listen to the latest? I don't know if it's the latest or the the second latest. The. Within. No, not within tolerance. Yeah, within tolerance. Uh, with Intolerance podcast. I'm halfway the guy... through the one with Cobra Frame Building. Oh, which one was That's it? the most recent one. I don't remember what the one last week was, but I did listen to it. Whatever it was. Garrett. Garrett Wade. Um, episode 202. I'm blanking on all the details, but I know I listened to that one. So he was, he had the UMC. So he was a photographer that did car stuff. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, then, yeah, yeah. Okay. And then he got, well... He got a UMC 500 and they kind of talk about how a lot of people have really bad experience or ha have had bad goes with it. And then he started talking about all the stuff that he's been able to do with it. And I wouldn't, I looked at his, his Instagram page of some of the parts he makes and they're just absolutely gorgeous. Like he has made some absolutely like amazing parts on the, on a UMC 500. And mm -hmm. so it, it kind of goes to show, like, even if people have a lot of bad times with the machine, once you know how to run your machine, you can make absolutely amazing parts on almost anything. Yeah. And, and not to say the UMC is a bad machine by any stretch of the imagination. It's just that a lot of people have, and they even talked about this in the podcast, that a lot of people have struggled with making good parts on the UMC 500. And um, Garrett has been like nailing it or knocking it out of the park. And honestly, after looking at his stuff, it makes me really want a UMC 500. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's a way better idea than a VF3 with a trunnion. Yeah, yeah, I know. I've been thinking about it. I also would like to, I still want to do a robot at some point. But if I did go UMC 500 and a row, I just saw a video with a, a UMC 500 with an Aroa Compact 80 next to it. And it's like, 
oh, that just that makes a lot of sense because you can have 13 different fixtures set up and run 13 different parts back to back without having to worry about anything. Um, Because the robot, the problem with the robot is it's really good at running parts, but you still have to set it up. It can't run like 13 different families of parts or 13 different types of parts without human intervention. Not easily. Or I've seen. Or ex, um, or sacrificing some efficiencies for flexibility. Yes, because you could, for example, say you know if you really wanted to go crazy, you could say we make everything out of a six-inch cube of aluminum, and yeah. you know if your parts you know two inches by three inches just waste a lot of material, but your mm-hmm. automation set up for it. Yeah, yeah, there's that. Or or you have three different sizes of aluminum or. As like you were talking about before, one of the companies dovetailed everything with the same work holding, with mm-hmm. the exact same dovetail, so they could use the standard setup. Like there's there's ways you just have to. Um, I don't. Know, it's engineering. It's all trade offs. Everything's trade offs. Everything's trade offs, and I, I I like the. I've always wanted to get in a row pallet system ever since I've seen it, but I didn't think it made sense on a UMC. Or not a UMC, a, a a VF with like a trunnion. There's not a there's not no, a good way yeah. to in, incorporate an Aroa. Um, but on a UMC 500, that equation's a lot different, and it would be real easy to throw a um, an Aroa pallet system on that. Yeah. Um, and then I you could th- go ahead. You may consider like getting there in steps. Like you could start off with just a Aroa zero point system, and that gets you eighty five percent of the functionality. Like you mm-hmm. can still, you know, in two seconds swap off fixtures, mm-hmm. and like you don't really need a robot to load them for you. It's nice, I'm sure. It, it 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 does if I get to the point where I need the capacity and I don't want to hire an employee. Yes. And and that's it's what you're talking about is kind of what we've been doing with the Tormach. We're trying to make our setup smarter and smarter to where you can load stuff in. And if you load it wrong, the machine errors out and Mm -hmm. it'll, if you load it, you kind of have a window that you can stick the part and the machine will find it. Like we're trying to build more and more smarts into our setups and trying to work on chip management so that stuff just works. Because the more of this stuff we can get figured out, even if we only have a Tormach, when we finally do make that jump, hopefully we're in the right mindset and have a good understanding to be able to hit the ground running, even though we don't have any experience. Oh, absolutely. I don't. I I think you're taking exactly the right approach there. Um, I'm just basically proposing another intermediate step, which is zero point without the robot. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'd be okay with that. I think zero point is definitely the way the industry's going. Even the robots are just kind of like a middle ground that, that the Versa built system, I love it to death, but it's kind of a uh, exception, not the rule in terms of the direction the industry's going. It yeah. makes a lot of sense, but I don't think it's nearly as flexible as a, a zero point system. Um, at least if in the right scenario. Because, like, I mean, Grimsmo built his business 
on a current with a, a row of pallet system next to it. And he yeah. can basically... No, he built his business on oh, a Tormach okay. and then That's a Mori. Okay. that? He did not build his business on a Kern. His business currently runs off a Kern with yes. an Aroa system. And he is able to produce parts and volumes that he could never have reached without a system like that. Or a lot more people working. Yeah. I, I would argue that if he had bought... What you could probably get six speedios for what he paid for his system. Oh, I yeah. would be willing to bet that six speedios would have more production output. Oh yeah, for sure. I, I'm not arguing that. What I'm arguing is that if he didn't have his pallet system next to it, he could never have bought a kern. I'll agree with that. Yep. Because there was he couldn't he couldn't keep that machine running enough to justify that cost if it didn't have a pallet system next to it. Uh, because, you know, he, he has uptimes of like hundreds of hours or like a hundred hours a week or more of mm -hmm. runtime out of that machine. Um, and you you could do that with different shifts of people, but it would be, I think, a lot. Even with different shifts of people, I don't think it would be as consistent. Yeah. So, and that's what I would like to get to is like, I don't. If I can justify getting a larger machine and sticking a pallet system next to, or a, a, a row of pallet system to it, or a row of pallet changing system, um, then that's the direction I want to go. Um, but I still like the robots in, like, I want to have a mixture of different automations. I don't think there's that such thing as a, a one size fits all, because there's trade offs in everything. That's one thing I've always said in engineering is. Uh, and this is what I, I tell my students um, whenever I we talk about this kind of stuff is I'll always say there's no such thing as a right or a wrong way to do something. There's always a better or worse, but never, never a right and wrong um, within reason. Like there, okay, I can think of some this, wrong ways of doing things. <laughs> there, I've done many of them. <laughs> there, there can definitely be wrong ways, but. It might be wrong in the sense that you could make it work. It might be just a really, 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 really bad idea. Yeah. But there's there is something in there that could be good about it. It's just done in the wrong way. And and that's the thing that I try to drive home is that like even a horrible idea usually has a grain in there that's like, okay, there's a good idea just surrounded by crap. <laughs> yeah. Well, and yeah, with with once you get past a certain level of machines, like there, if you ask, like, what is the best machine tool in the world? There is no right answer to that without more context. Because the yes. Kern, for some applications, is the best machine tool in the world. However, mm -hmm. there is also many applications, like, uh, I don't know, hogging out engine blocks, where it is not the right tool for the job. And you need, yeah. uh, you know, a big grove or something. Like, exactly. There, there is no best machine tool. There is no best automation. It comes down to what you are making, which is a really good argument for um, focusing and niching down. Because yeah. if you niche down, then you can buy a machine that's more specific to you. Like the, the Haas OM, pretty specific machine. And mm -hmm. I'm sure that'll kind of lead to a, um, not feedback a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, feedback loop, thank you. Where, okay, so I did small things with small tools and lots of surfacing. And so then I bought a machine for small tools and small things and lots of surfacing. And, you know, you want to take a guess on which direction my products are going to go? 
Like, yeah. Yeah. But, but I'm to be start fair, to be fair, that can give you a competitive advantage if that's the direction you're going and you're competing with other guys. Having a 30,000 RPM spindle. Oh, yeah. In that package means that you can you can have more flowing lines and it costs you much less than the next guy. Yes. Um, which, for example, on the Better Desk product line, one of our um, like design guides was no straight lines. So, you know, you're going to need a higher RPM spindle for that. Yeah. Yeah, which you haven't lost. You haven't launched a single Better Desk product, have you? No, as I'm waiting for the Kickstarter. Okay. So how many Kickstarters do you have in the chamber right now? I just have, well, if you don't count the pen, I just have one that is fairly ready to launch. And then I have the fidget cubes, which I'm getting ready to fulfill. Okay. I thought which you is kind of how I always want to be. Have um, one that I'm working on and then one that I'm fulfilling. Okay. I never want to be fulfilling two at the same time. I never want to be like doing the design and marketing for two at the same time. So, yeah. Okay. I could see a point where you're designing one, fulfilling one and marketing one though. I would need more people, but I, that's possible. Yeah. So if, if, if you can keep your products pumping and keep your Kickstarter chain rolling without either one impeding the other, that'll be the biggest thing that you need to get figured out. Yeah. Cause you can't, you can't be slowing down your Kickstarters because you have a whole bunch of products you're trying to make and you can't be slowing down shipping out products on time because you're trying to prototype Kickstarter stuff. Like they both, they both can't interfere with each other for either one, for both of them to be effective. Yes. But, and I think at least currently, I think that balance needs to be geared a little bit more towards Kickstarters. I think those tend to be a little bit higher margin for me because I'm putting a lot of money into advertising right now. The exception yeah. to that is on my pry bars. My pry bars are both selling pretty well right now at the current ads and the material cost and the machine time on those is relatively low. Yeah. But like As with the carabiners right now, I would be better off with the better desk tick starter doing well. Yeah. Yeah, you you still need to get your product sales up to a point to where they sustain and the Kickstarter grows. Yes. That that once you once you reach that point in time, things will become a lot easier. I also need to work back on the feedback loop between Kickstarter and my products. Right now those are like completely separate entities. The people on Kickstarter don't really come and buy a lot of products. I'm sure it does happen probably more than I know of. But then the people who buy my products, I'm sure almost none of them coming back to Kickstarter. And I think if I can get Kickstarter people coming to my store and then my store people going to the Kickstarter, I think that's where I really start to pick up yeah. some RPMs here. For your Kickstarter, it'd be real easy to offer a discount or something to get people over to your website. But for yeah. your website people... I don't know if you can offer a discount for backing the Kickstarter. No. Yeah, it'll all have to be about excitement, basically. Yeah. I can. One thing I can do is tack on a bunch of items on Backer Kit. So, like, for example, at the Fidget Cubes, uh, and I just realized we haven't set out the Backer Survey for that yet. 
But with the fidget cubes, I can let people add on carabiners and, you know, pry bars and stuff. And it takes mm-hmm. zero effort on my end and it's free sales. So with the backer kit, can you literally add anything that people want to buy in addition? Like you could add like your whole store page. Yeah, like literally. Backer kit lets you build what lets you build a store. Like this that's exactly what it is. Oh, okay. That people can add on. That's cool. I think at some point it might be like confusing or not make sense, and you maybe have to handle that, but I that's think that's what I was be- wondering. I think that could be solved with a couple of carefully worded comments like check out all the other stuff we have. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Here's here's the stuff that goes with the Kickstarter and here's all the other stuff we make. Yeah. Kind of. Let's see. We are now selling and advertising the not for climbing carabiner, the pry bars and the not so tactical carabiners. How's uh, how's the two different carabiner styles selling? Like is one selling better than the other? Or we have not even? been we have not been advertising the not so tactical very long, and our ad for it is not nearly as good as it is for the not for climbings. So we're mm-hmm. definitely selling less of them. The pry bars right now are in terms of number of products sold are our biggest seller. However, in terms of dollars, like they're so much cheaper that they are not. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's see the last major product I need to get ads out for is the orange slices which have always been our best seller on Etsy yeah I always liked your orange slices I thought they were really cool which I saw that you did them out of a full sheet how'd that go yes. my chamfers were a little bit too deep for some reason that I can't explain but otherwise they came out really well I still need to do the op 2 on those but uh, it's fairly quick and simple to do yeah yeah, as as you keep improving your quality, um, it'll start making big differences. I think in in your customer base. Yeah, they are so much nicer than the uh, the laser cut ones. Yeah, yeah, makes a lot of sense. So, yeah. let's just say I don't think I have. Oh, oh, I do have one other thing. So. Oh, got some in my eye. So we ha- we went to a Haas demo day a while back and didn't really see or or gain a whole lot from that in terms of what was actually at the event. But we got to do some networking and I got to meet some pretty critical people in the area. Um, and one of those was a guy who worked for the company that that did the rigging for our lathe and we got hooked up with him and we were talking to him and he introduced us to uh, one of the Haas reps in Oklahoma and um, which is right next door. And they have a Haas demo day coming up on October 4th. And so he invited us to that. And he says it's probably like three or four times bigger than the one in Arkansas. Um, And they have a lot, they have like at the one in Arkansas, they had Haas and maybe five to 10 other vendors. Okay. And and at this other place. And, and so 
had probably five to ten vendors, and there was probably there's probably less than fifty people that were business that worked. They either owned businesses or were there on behalf of other people from the business. Like it was a pretty small event overall. And this one, they're supposedly going to have like thirty to fifty vendors, and it's going to have a lot more people. Uh, I guess on the Oklahoma side, they said there's probably three to four times the level of manufacturing than there is in Arkansas for whatever reason. And so it'll be really good for networking. And I want to get there early and stay late and just poke people's brains and meet people and network. Yeah. And so super, super excited for that. Uh, The first one was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. Um, but I, I get the feeling that this next one is going to hopefully help us pick up another customer or two, uh, if not network and get to know some different people in different industries. Um, I really want to start looking at getting some metrology equipment to better, better check our parts. Because um, even though we've had a really good success record so far, as we, if we do start hiring people and bringing them on, um, I need to have processes and inspection areas designated to force things to go through that stuff. That way we can ensure quality. Because what I don't want is I've gotten a lot of praise from our biggest customer for our quality and our parts. And I don't want to get big, hire a bunch of people, and then have our quality suffer. Um, so whoever we bring on um, as we grow has to have a strong focus on quality. And um, we scrap a lot of parts that people would probably consider good, um, but we don't like them just because they might be in spec, but visually they do not pass our standards. Um, and from all the praise we've gotten from our from our biggest customer, um, it shows, and I I want to I want to build the type of company that um, when people get our parts they go oh my goodness these things look like a diamond and so I got to instill that into all the people we hire and build processes to support it. I can tell you right now, no matter who you hire, nobody's going to care about the quality as much as you do, and so you have to have the processes in place. You can't just count on the person caring. No, you can't. And that's something that if you've ever worked for anyone else, you understand. You don't care for that job like the guy who started it does. And so, and that's the number one complaint that they have. And at my old job, they would complain a lot about the quality of the worker that they had. And personally, I felt like the people that they had put their heart and soul into the company in a way that even though it was a very busy job, like I felt like they did a really good job and and were trying really hard to make good, make stuff happen. Um, But they would still get crapped on by other people in the company. Um, And I hope we never, that never happens to us. I want to, I want to always, I want to always produce high quality parts, 
and employ high quality people and, and make sure they know that they're high quality people and that we appreciate them there. I think I've said this before, but when Jay Pearson, um, he produced a video a while back where he, where it was like his orientation for his new employees. Mm-hmm. One of the things I really liked that he said is that, you know, I, I know that when we hire you, it's not a guarantee that you're going to stay with us for the rest of your life. But while you're here, I want to make you a better person. That way, whenever you go to your next job, you're more employable um, and you have more skills and you're a higher quality worker. Because, you know, he wants he wants everyone who leaves his company to have people look back and go, oh, that's a Pearson work holding worker. Oh, they're going to be great. They're going to be a great yeah. person. And so if you can make a system where you where you instill and build quality into the people you hire, you don't have to find high quality people. You'll help make high quality people. So. And you don't do that on accident. You don't do that on accident. No, it's it's not an afterthought. You have to. You have to build that from the ground up. And. That's where I feel like a lot of the. A lot of countries outside the U.S. do a much better job of that than the U.S. The U.S. has a, such a high turnover rate, and it's such common practice to have people stay for very short periods of time and move on. That instilling qualities and uh, investing in people in America, I feel like there's less emphasis on that because of how much people jump jobs. Yes, and and I think people jump jobs because they don't have as much of investment. So it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy in a lot of ways. Yep. It's back to that feedback loop. Everything's a feedback loop. So anyways, I've kind of preached for a little bit, but regardless of all that, the whole point I was making was that I'm excited for the new host demo day coming up next week. So anyways, AJ is not so casually telling me that it's time to go. So uh, with that said, um, it's been an awesome, awesome time to catch up with you, AJ, and uh, all the all of you guys that have been listening into the conversation. We appreciate you guys hanging on and, and hearing us out. We're just a couple of guys that are in our garage shops trying to build something great. <laughs> so, uh, anyways, this is Harrison with Precision Ingenuity signing out with AJ from Design the Everything.